Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, some of the biggest names in tennis have descended on Vancouver for the sixth annual Labour Cup, the Ryder Cup of Tennis. It pits six players from Team World, including Canadian Felix Auger-Aliassime and Milos Raonic. He's an alternate against six players from Team Europe. Old friends and foes John McEnroe and Bjorn Borg are the team captains, no less. It's the first time it's come to Canada. We hear from the Labour Cup CEO about what to expect this weekend. We take a trip around the world and back in time with author Taras Goresko, who joins me to talk about his new book, The Lost Supper, Searching for the Future of Food in the Flavors of the Past, a menu on his journey that included a famous Roman fish sauce, a Vancouver Island root called camas, and much, much more. It's been a very tough, even deadly 2023 for the many thousands of wildland firefighters in this country. But over many years now, the growing physical and emotional demands, along with poor working conditions, are taking a serious toll on those on the front lines. We hear from one of them. But first, two premiers made some big news today. First, we crunched the numbers on Alberta's proposal to withdraw from the Canadian pension plan and go it alone. And look at what prompted a sudden U-turn from Ontario's Doug Ford today on a controversial plan to turn Greenbelt land over to developers. He issued an apology and a promise to reverse what he had done. Does that put a lid on this scandal? We find out. Speaking of eating things that mightn't have tasted too good, Ontario's Premier today inhaled a very large piece of humble pie. Have a listen. It was a mistake to open the Greenbelt. It was a mistake to establish a process that moved too fast. This process, it left too much room for some people to benefit over others. It caused people to question our motives. It sounds a bit scripted, but if you listen to the words, it is indeed a complete U-turn, a reversal of a very controversial and politically damaging Greenbelt land swap decision. We've talked about this on the show before. Uh, this was a move to sort of allow a certain amount of development to happen on chunks of what is a protected swath of land right around Toronto. About 7,400 acres of land in more than a dozen sections were released to build some 50,000 homes, or so he said. He was going to add 9,400 acres to the green belt, but really the controversy was about those 7,400 acres that were going to be open for development. And who's why specifically those pieces of land and who was going to get rich because of it. Uh, Doug Ford says he had broke a promise when he decided to do that, and uh, he promised not to touch the green belt in the future. Have a listen. I want the people of Ontario to know I'm listening. I made a promise to you that I wouldn't touch the green belt. I broke that promise. And for that, I am very, very sorry. I pride myself on keeping our promises. Uh, not words you often hear from a politician, very sorry, and apologies and reversals and so on. I mean, this was really problematic for him, not just because he broke that promise, but when people started to dig through what exactly was going on here, and this was backed up by reports from the Auditor General and the Integrity, Integrity Commissioner in Ontario, that the process to select those lands was rushed and it favoured certain developers. There was an outcry as more and more details emerged. Cabinet ministers and staffers were forced to resign. The Premier looked like he had absolutely no response for this, although he stuck to his guns for a very long time, well, at least until today. New Democrat leader in Ontario, Merritt Stiles, says it was the hard work and loud voices of the people who brought about the backtrack. 
So congratulations to everyone who's been fighting for our vital farmland and green space, who said no to cronyism and corruption in government. This is a victory for you. It's a victory for all Ontarians. Well, joining me now with more on this is Mark Winfield. He's a political scientist and professor of environmental and urban change at York University. Uh, Mark, thanks so much. Oh, good evening. Uh, tell me a bit about your reaction just to the words that we heard today, because it wasn't like he had telegraphed it. We got a sense that maybe something like this was coming, but he's not often one to uh, to reverse this way. No, I mean, it was it was really quite an extraordinary scene. And and one I can't really find a reference point in uh, in in certainly the modern political experience of the province. It was really quite extraordinary for for this level of a back back, back down, and and also sort of admission of of failure and 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 making mistakes. It really is quite extraordinary. Now, I gather this had become untenable politically for Ford. There was more and more details coming out about what exactly had happened. But just to go back a little bit, I mean, he had promised not to touch this land. It had been in place, I guess, since, uh, the, you know, about, in about 18 years ago, since the Liberal government of the time put it into place to protect this swath of the so-called green belt around Toronto. How did this scandal unfold? Because he promised not to do it, then he did it, and then what really got people rankled was how it was done. Well, there were there were many dimensions in a long history because Mr. Ford had a history of, of he was caught on record talking to developers about about opening the green belt and then reversed himself, and then um, eventually in the aftermath of the election last summer, <coughs> we saw this process set in motion to to remove lands from the green belt, and. We saw um, very detailed descriptions of what went on, both from the Auditor General and the Integrity Commissioner, who described the process as, as the actual word that was used was madcap. Um, it was completely outside of any any normal uh, governmental decision-making process. And indeed, we have comments from former secretaries to the Cabinet and things like that describing just how completely outside of the normal decision-making process this was, and the suggestion is that uh, certain developers were, were either tipped off or, or, or more or less invited to ask to have properties removed from the green belt. Um, the ministry staff were, were completely sidelined in the process. Um, it was almost sort of a, an ask, if, ask and you will receive kind of situation if you had the right connections to the government is the implication of, of what uh, both the auditor and the integrity commissioner said. And this is, make no mistake, this is very valuable land if you happen to have bought it when it was protected and then knew it was going to be changed. Yeah, the figure that is, is out there from the Auditor General was, was $8.3 billion uh, in terms of the change in the value of the land uh, from the point that it was bought when it was inside the green belt and therefore thought to be undevelopable, except only able to be used as agricultural land, to what it would be worth if it can be urbanized. So an extraordinary windfall uh, for the developers who had bought these lands. And, of course, part of the mystery was that uh, these purchases had happened um, in a relatively short time period before the announcements were made that the lands were being removed from the green belt. And, I mean, one of the reasons that Doug Ford kept bringing up again and again and again, he was, he was trying to lean on the housing crisis and say, well, we need these homes, right? Uh, but that, too, was challenged. In other words, you didn't need to free up this land to try to solve this problem. 
No, no, and indeed it, it's a point of uh, fairly extensive consensus that there was absolutely no need uh, from a housing perspective to open these lands to development. Um, the government's own housing task force, which is dominated by the development industry, said there was not a problem in terms of land supply. Uh, the regional planning commissioners had said that. Um, the Auditor General effectively confirmed that finding herself. Um, uh, academic researchers had said the same thing, that there was there is a great deal of land already designated for urban development in the region. There was absolutely no need uh, to take land out of the green belt uh, to provide land for housing. And at the time, they added more land back into the green belt, which I suppose was I suppose was supposed to be the quid pro quo at the time. Although it certainly didn't wind up that way as all the details emerged. But that land's going to stay. So in fact, the green belt ultimately, we think, will have expanded. Well, that is that is one of the ironies of this situation is that the green belt will grow. And indeed, um, I think the other consideration is that the, the, the political fallout from this has been so extensive that in some ways, um, Doug Ford, who kind of set out to take land out of the green belt and raise questions about the value of the whole thing, um, has created a situation where in some ways he's actually, he's kind of cemented um, the, the, the protection of the green belt even more deeply, because after all of this, it's difficult to imagine any politician in Ontario coming back and suggesting they're going to take land out of the green belt. It certainly is an example, and we don't see many of them these days, of a politician having their feet held to the fire over a decision and them relenting on it, sort of the relentless revelations that we saw over several months, uh, including some very good reporting from many corners, uh, but from the Narwhal in particular, I believe, at the beginning, that just sort of people digging into this exposed it. And it's not often you see it end up with this kind of announcement from a premier. No, um, but I think it had reached a point um, where there really wasn't very much choice. I mean, there seemed to be, to me, there seemed two, two crucial and fairly colossal blunders um, one being to have underestimated the the kind of iconic status that the green belt seems to have acquired in the public's mind in southern Ontario, and then secondly, this this refusal to to back down a sort of month long process between when the auditor general tabled her report and and where we are today. Because um, most political observers and strategists would say, well, what happened today needed to happen the day the auditor tabled her report, and that might have limited the damage. But instead, um, we've, we've been through this extraordinary uh, period in which the political uh, damage has accumulated, and I think it did reach a point, especially with the second ministerial resignation, um, that the premier really didn't have any choice at that stage. There was there were no legs left to stand on in terms of the position he was trying to take. What happens to the land now? I, we had a texter ask us who owns the Greenbelt land. It's owned by a bunch of people. You just can't develop on it. Is that right? Um, I think in the circumstances, no. I mean, the developers took a risk and they speculated in terms of, of buying the land when it was part of the green belt. I think they'd have an awfully hard time convincing a court that they're somehow entitled to compensation for the money that they might have made on the base of that speculation. I mean, at best, they might be compensated for their, their direct costs to date, which are not large. Um, so I think I think they'd have a tough time making a case for some kind of compensation on on anything like the scale of the the kind of profits that they were expecting to make off those lands. 
Right, because we had a texter text us in, and my, my impression, because I think I covered this when it first happened, I was based in Toronto, the Greenbelt land is owned by a bunch of people. It's just the zoning rules that are that are on it, right? You can't build on it. You can't build certain things on it. Yeah, this is exactly it. It, it is privately held land. Um, although when, when the Greenbelt was created, in fact, it was all rural land already. One of the points that's made around the actual creation of the Greenbelt is that nobody's nobody's land was down zoned like anywhere that you could have built you could still build it was more freezing of the zoning particularly if it was as for agricultural rural purposes so yeah it's it's essentially a planning rule it's a zoning rule and um you know although uh, clearly if you change the the planning designation that can change the value of the land very significantly but the the period of time when it was available to be developed was was so short in this in this case. I, I again I find it difficult to imagine a situation in which a court would be very sympathetic to a, a complaint from the the developers that somehow they had had lost money as a result of the downzoning in this particular case. So the premier now has given himself pretty much um, you know he's given himself a pass on this one to some extent, but one gets the impression that, that there might be more to find here uh, because this blanket apology and reversal and you know there's been lots of stuff dug up already. Uh, do you think the digging should continue? Should there be some kind of bigger inquiry into this? Oh, the digging is continuing. Um, the story's not over. Um, there are multiple things in motion at this stage. Um, the Auditor General has already, had already signaled um, their intention to do a follow-up audit. Um, we know the RCMP have been asked to to investigate, and uh, uh, so we're not sure where that's going to lead. But you know, we now have a situation where a cabinet minister, among other things, is admitting having lied under oath. Um, I'm quite sure the the media and other people will have filed a, a raft of freedom of information requests, which will which will come out. The results of which will come out over time. There may be questions uh, filed in the legislature along those lines as well. So I think I think there's there's probably more to come here, um, which will come out in different ways. So so I don't think this story's over. Um, uh, I suspect the the paper trail is is actually quite substantial, given the the sort of very ad hoc way in which decision making happened in this case of the auditor and the integrity commissioner documented. Um, I think there's there's considerably more to come yet. Well, Mark, it's been quite the day. Thank you so much for uh, for filling us in on what exactly what happened. I appreciate it. No, no, very happy to chat with you. <laughs> Let's head to Alberta right now, and this is an announcement that could impact folks right across the country if it were to come to fruition. The Premier Daniel Smith announced today that the province will, in fact, pursue a plan to leave the Canada Pension Plan. It comes on the heels of a report released today that claims Alberta is entitled to a whopping $334 billion from the national program should it begin the three-year process of withdrawing next year to go it alone. That's more than half of the $575 billion the fund currently has in assets under management. Now, the Premier claims transferring those that huge amount of money to Alberta would translate into larger paychecks and retirement benefits for its citizens. 
The LifeWorks analysis estimates that Albertans could save more than $5 billion in the first year alone if we moved from the CPP to an Alberta pension plan. That's because hardworking Albertans have paid much more into the CPP than Alberta seniors get back in pension benefits. I believe that an Alberta pension plan would be fairer and could make life more affordable for all Albertans. It could bring more benefits for seniors, higher take-home pay for workers, and strengthen the Alberta advantage to attract business. I believe it's the right decision for our province. But I also believe in making sure that every Albertan has their say. Right. So the plan, if the plan were to go ahead, it would go to a referendum. Now, it all sounds very rosy, doesn't it? Of course it does. Uh, But there are a long list of problems with that analysis. Here's what CPPIB's Mark Leduc told the Calgary Herald's Don Bray today. We respect the, the right of Albertans to consider withdrawing from the CPP. However, the amount the report says could be extracted from the CPP is impossible. And based on an invented formula, references to how much a province might claim from the CPP fund should be regarded with caution and a high degree of skepticism until many issues are resolved between federal and provincial governments. And the opposition NDP in Alberta didn't mince their words either. Here's Rachel Notley. Today, Danielle Smith took the first step in her long-term plan to steal your pension. She did it by releasing a report riddled with fake numbers. And she now plans to spend your money campaigning to convince you it's a good idea. Every province takes these matters very, very seriously. And they understand uh, the importance of CPP. And uh, to be very clear, uh, Alberta is not just picking a fight with Ottawa. They are picking a fight with all Canadians. Well, let's try and crunch the numbers a little bit here. Trevor Tome is a professor of economics at the University of Calgary and a research fellow at the School of Public Policy. He's just released a report, probably not a coincidence, called the Alberta Pension Advantage, a quantitative analysis of a separate provincial plan. Trevor, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So this one is an interesting one. It's been talked about in the past. Uh, I grew up in Quebec, so I'm well aware of what it's like to throw numbers around. <laughs> Some of them <laughs> are somewhat hard to believe. But tell me, uh, who, who's right here? Because $334 billion out of a $575 billion fund would essentially decimate the thing. I mean, it sounds impossible to me. Yeah, the the trouble here, though, is that the Canada Pension Plan Act, the section that would govern the assets that a separating province would receive, isn't very precisely worded. And so it does allow for a range of potential interpretations. Now, I do think that the interpretation that the LifeWorks uh, report put forward and that the government definitely uh, liked to see is unreasonable like an unreasonable read of the language, but it's also mathematically unworkable. If Alberta and Ontario were to both uh, leave under the same formula, they would claim more assets than exists. And many provinces, the formula spits out a negative number. So it, it doesn't work in the modern CPP. It was language that was really something that made sense when the plan first started back in the 60s. But our reforms right. along the way have really fundamentally changed the game. Right. So, I mean, I've read your paper and, and it is it is an economics paper, but for listeners to understand, I mean, when, when the CPP started, it was really about contributions in, contributions out. Then, of course, the yeah. population got older, it became more complicated. And since the mid-90s, there's in fact been an investment board that takes that money and invests it to grow it to keep the fund sustainable. So that's why it's so much yeah. money now, $575 billion, right? That's a lot of money. Um, and, and of course, how much money an APP, so to speak, would have as seed money would make 
make a big difference in some of the benefits that are being touted by the Premier today? It would make a huge difference because those assets would earn a return that would supplement the contributions that workers make. And that's why the Canada Pension Plan is sustainable for the long haul, even as our population ages, because we have, since the late 90s, accumulated this large fund. But the 330 that the, the Premier is speaking about, this is, this is so large that just for perspective, it generates more revenue than all of the expenditures of the plan, and there'd be some left over. So it, it's just an eye-popping number. Uh, and, and for a single province to claim more than half of the accumulated pension savings of Canadians is kind of on its face not reasonable. So it, it would absolutely lead to pretty intense political fights, but certainly uh, an issue where the Supreme Court of Canada would ultimately need to interpret the vague language of the act. Yeah, in a divorce, money is always money is always one of the things people <laughs> fight over more than anything else. Where did this idea come from? I mean, I grew, again, being in Quebec, Quebec never opted into CPP, so they have That's their right. separate plan already, right. and so they've kind of charted a course. Like like most things, it'd be much harder to build today than it was then. Uh, but they've kind of kind of charted a course that shows that this can can work in theory. But what is it in Alberta? What's prompted this idea of sort of taking their money out. I realize there's some charts that you put up today that show that, of course, contributions in Alberta to CPP are are higher than they are in other provinces. Yeah, so Alberta is certainly a younger province than others, and that mechanically does make it easier to operate a pension plan because young people pay in and won't collect until later. Uh, Time value of money kind of works in your favor in that case. And so it's a relatively old idea. It was really pushed in the province here in the early 1980s when we had a party that was called the Western Canada Concept Party. It was a separatist party. And so, of course, they were pushing a separate Alberta pension plan. But then it really ramped up the modern interest in it uh, started in the late 90s when that CPP reform occurred. And the reason was the CPP reform involved an increase in contribution rates. And when you're increasing payroll taxes, there's going to be some opposition to that. And Alberta's finance minister at the time, Stockwell Day, was a pretty big opponent and and started around 2000, uh, kind of a broader deep dive into a look at the Alberta pension plan. And it's been a part of conversations in uh, some quarters in Alberta ever since. When you look at it, though, on its basis, is Alberta hard done by in terms of what the CPP is doing, certainly what the CPPIB, the investment board, is doing? Because it feels like uh, Alberta and the rest of Canada has done pretty well with how the CPP has worked out over the past quarter century or so. Yeah, I, I would characterize the reform in the late 90s as an unqualified success. And interestingly, Jim Dinning, the one who is now chairing the uh, panel that Alberta has empowered to engage with Albertans on this issue. He was instrumental in that reform back when he was finance minister in the late 1990s. Um, Now, Alberta being hard done by, this is something that's referred to a lot, that we over-contribute to the plan. And the data is pretty pretty clear. There's a nearly $4 billion gap between revenue and uh, expenditures by the CPP in Alberta. But this is simply due to the young population that exists here. Young people pay in and don't receive anything. That That's not an imbalance. It is in that particular year. But when you're older, you're going to get the payments out of the plan. So when you look at a, a, when you control for age and look at a life cycle perspective, Albertans don't pay in more or receive less than a similarly 
uh, situated individual in BC or Ontario or Manitoba or anywhere else. So it's, it's not really a plan that's biased against Alberta. It's just that young people pay into pension plans um, because that's how they work. Uh, Trevor, right across the country, too, I mean, it have huge ramifications for the pension plan investment board that we all rely on for, for retirement funds, at least the CPP. That's absolutely right. So if you take half the assets out of the CPP, then that does mean that contributions of workers would need to increase to make up for it. Now, luckily, I don't think that uh, their interpretation is workable or reasonable. But a reasonable number, so the CPP itself actually put out their estimate at 16% of the the assets might go to a separate Alberta plan. I, in the report I released today, my estimate's about 20%. And so that gives you a sense of the reasonable range of where I think we might land where Alberta to actually go down this road. And if that were the split, if that were the share of assets that would go to Alberta, then contribution rates elsewhere wouldn't need to increase. So this asset split is really a critical piece of the puzzle. Yeah, it really makes a difference in whether the benefits are really worth the risks of this, because the risks are there, too. I don't want to give AIMCO a hard time. They handle Alberta's pensions. But AIMCO have not been famous for their returns over the years. Their 10-year return now is about 7.2%, whereas CPPIBs, who handle the Canada Pension Plan, theirs is 10%. I mean, there's that's a lot of money. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with investment in Alberta, but CPP have been, first of all, they're massive, their reach is huge, and there's strength in numbers when it comes to that kind of investment. Uh, you know, in terms of the big institutional investment world. And CPP are one of the leading, sort of leading institutional investors in the world right now. And we all benefit from that in some senses. Alberta doesn't have that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And CPP does a, does a great job at having pretty good returns, stronger returns than we previously expected for it, and stronger returns than we need. When we do these long-term projections to analyze the sustainability of the CPP, we bank on Six percent return, and so anything over six is more than necessary for the plan. So the CPP is more than sustainable, and a separate Alberta plan not only would it you know, potentially have lower returns and a uh, a less well-established group, but it is also something that would be subject to political risks. You know, kind of like what we see in Quebec, although they mm-hmm. do it openly and honestly, uh, where it's allocating investments in a way not just to maximize returns, but to invest in local businesses or spur different industries. And in Alberta's case, you could easily see it tilting towards oil and gas. The premier herself has made statements to that effect as one reason for having a separate Alberta plan, whereas the CPP is protected from any one government. You need two-thirds of the provinces plus the feds to agree on changes to the investment board mandate. So it's, it's really uniquely insulated from that kind of political risk. Yeah, the C, the CDPQ in, in Quebec, the case, uh, case de dépôt is, and Plasma have been, have been, they are national champions. I guess Alberta's, it's yep. funny that Alberta's been looking so intently on what Quebec has done and thinking, hey, we can do that too. But again, <laughs> I mean, times are so different now. I mean, and the yeah. CDPQ comes yeah. under fire at times and they are very transparent with how they invest their money. I, I just think one of the things I worry about here is, is that you do not want to politicize people's retirement savings. You just can't. And I worry when I listen to Danielle Smith talk, I think, wait a second, like, what exactly are you, what is this plan all about, right? What is, you can start investing this money in things that just don't make sense. And what do you do if you start to lose money? Then it's on you. And that can be a big deal. That can be. Now, in Quebec's case, they do do it 
openly, and they did from the start. This was a stated objective. It was clear. So it was an eyes wide open kind of decision. Today, Quebecers pay nearly a full percentage point higher contributions than the rest of the country for the same benefit. Uh, one, they're older, but also potentially because their assets are not there to maximize returns in the way that the CPP is. And so, yeah, I think that's that's certainly a piece that worries me as well. And investment risk, of course, it's something that the CPP faces as well. All pension plans face a little bit of investment risk, but a smaller, more isolated fund in just a single province is more exposed to that volatility than the national plan, which better pools these kind of risks. Yeah, we saw Imco get nailed quite badly a few years back on uh, on a volatility swap, I believe it's called, and they got into uh, a fair amount of trouble over that. Uh, now, this is going to go into the political sphere. So sometimes the numbers, mm-hmm. as we saw with Brexit, sometimes the numbers don't necessarily matter whether they add up or not. What's your sense <laughs> of where it goes from here? Well, I think Jim Dinning is is someone I have a lot of respect for and will lead a pretty good engagement panel over the next six months. And so I think it'll be really interesting to watch what the public response is there. We saw this with the equalization referendum in Alberta uh, not too long ago, but I guess a, a couple of years now. And it was really just a proxy battle for other grievances that individuals had at the time, largely pipelines and things like that. And we've seen some op-eds already come out now in support of the Alberta Pension Plan, and it connected directly to things like federal environmental policy. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll be waiting to see over the next couple of months whether, whether or not uh, people are engaging on the merits of a separate pension plan or just using it as a chance to um, bash Ottawa. Yeah, I, I don't know about using people's retirement money to bash Ottawa. I mean, to, to me, this I look at this and think, okay, I get why you're doing it, but this sounds like a very bad idea, <laughs> a very bad idea. And yeah, only because on it, it's, not, it's not broken. So what are you fixing? What are you fixing? And, and, and the risks are very high, and it looks like the benefits, eh, debatable. Yeah, so I think as a young jurisdiction, it's hard to mechanically avoid the potential for a lower contribution rate to prevail. So even with a reasonable asset split in, in the paper I put out, I get about a 1.3 percentage point drop in the contribution rate in Alberta. But the risks are pretty considerable. Like if migration flows, for example, in and out of the province of Alberta no longer uh, remain as strongly positive as they are now, well, then nearly two-thirds of the entire advantage just evaporates. And so these kind of, you know, decades into the future, these risks of what's Alberta's economy look like, what's the price of oil, where are Canadians moving for work, you can't predict that right now. And so being a separate plan means that if things don't work out, then suddenly a couple of decades from now, you have a much higher contribution rate to make up for the fact that you separated from the larger plan. Yeah, well, we'll see where it goes from here. There might be a referendum. We'll see after the consultations are done. Trevor, as always, thanks so much for uh, shedding some light on this. Thank you. My pleasure. We know, because we've talked about it on the show a lot this year, what an incredibly difficult and sometimes deadly year it's been for the many thousands fighting on the front lines of this country's record wildfire season, whether it be Quebec or Alberta or BC or the Northwest Territories. I mean, the work that wildland firefighters have done this year protecting so many communities 
in such tough circumstances has been absolutely heroic. And I think a lot of people have stopped to recognize that this year. Now, earlier this week, there was another tragic incident. Four men who'd been helping battle uh, fire, uh, wildfires in the Vanderhoof area in BC's interior were killed in a crash, uh, a car crash, coming back after a 14-day assignment. And yesterday, BC, BC's Forests Minister, Bruce Ralston, uh, put it into perspective. Here's what he said. It's emotionally wrenching and, and heartbreaking to to hear of people who are completed their work uh, on their way home and uh, meet with their deaths on the road. It, it's uh, it, it's really tragic. It is, and it has. It's not the first time this season alone. There have been eight deaths, six in BC. Uh, and while this has been a particularly tough and tragic year, it's built on a trend seen over several years now of more and more physical and mental strain just because of how intense and how common uh, wildfires can be uh, that are suffered by those on the front lines combined with some pretty insecure work conditions. It varies from province to province, but in general, pretty insecure, very long and grueling work hours, high turnover, low pay. It's all taking a very serious toll. The one thing we don't really understand is how serious. A U.S. study released in April called Wildland Firefighters, Hidden Heroes of the Mental Health Effects of Climate Change found that while those on the front lines are receiving a lot more recognition for their efforts to protect communities from the flames, very little is discussed about how to better protect them and the impact, especially the long-term impact it is having on a lot of those doing this incredible work. Uh, They found that very little is discussed about the issue and really the profound physical and mental consequences they experience. None of this will come as a surprise to my next guest, Tiffany Traverse, served as a wildland firefighter for eight years with the BC Wildfire Service before resigning in 2022. And she joins me now. Tiffany, thank you so much. Hi, thank you, Ben, for having me. Tell me a bit about your decision to get in this in, into this in the first place, because it, uh, you know, it, it's quite, it's quite the job. Yeah, it it definitely is. And, you know, um, I'd moved to the north with my husband uh, probably about 12 years ago, and I was just looking for some kind of job that would get me outside a lot more and just get to know the area and get to know the people. Uh, And I saw this job come up with BC Wildfire Service as an operations assistant. And, you know, I had a bit of admin background. You know, the pay was obviously not very great. Um, But I really just wanted to try something uh, just completely different. And I fell in love with it and all the people I worked with. It was uh, a pretty great gig, Um, you know, so it seemed back in 2014 when I started, which was actually a pretty busy year for us here. What was it like? I mean, what did you do and what was it like those those in those early years and and as it as it progressed as well? Yeah, you know, I I started as a, like when I say operations assistant, I started out in a very um, logistical support role, uh, which was really in my wheelhouse, you know, uh, that was anything from ordering jet fuel for the helicopters, getting heavy equipment ordered, and really just like really stick handling the work that was involved to help the people on the front lines, because I wasn't an actual um, field person at that time. Uh, and it just it progressed from there, um, and I was able to get into a role as a wildfire assistant and, and get me a bit more fire experience so I could get the whole experience. What was that like? Because what we've seen this year, I mean, some of the some of the situations that they that wildland firefighters find themselves in, I mean, it, it's hard to imagine because it's so vast and these fires burn so hot that it's hard to imagine what it must be like to try to control one. It's pretty wild. And like, honestly, even from a personal standpoint, I actually don't have a whole lot of direct fireline experience, believe it or not. You know, it was about five years doing the operations assistant role Mm -hmm. um, and about two and a half years doing this more um, direct response role 
you know, but I was I was getting some mentorship and, and you know, the, the seasons weren't quite as bad yet where we were locally. So, you know, lots of our crews are being deployed out to other areas that were like busier than our area here, our, our Dawson Creek fire zone. Um, yeah, but it was it was definitely giving me a lot more um, experience, you know, being out on the line, being able to, you know, be confident using pumps and, and using my GPS and like just really getting that um, on the ground experience. Yeah, you mentioned that, I mean, obviously it's it's because of where you are and you're away and, and it's a family, right? So you would see the impacts that this was having on other people as well. And you described it, I think, in an interview as as a meat grinder, which 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 doesn't sound, you know, that's that's quite quite the way of describing it. Yeah, you know, it is. And I, I don't uh, tend to, for lack of another pun, mince words, I think mm-hmm. it's like, important to realize that a lot of the people that are coming into this line of work um, as rookies or first-year people are quite young. Like, these are youth. You know, I'm in my 40s now. Um, I'm getting tired. I'm getting like, a little bit of weight on me. You know, I'm more in, in the, these support and operations roles, helping with tactics, helping with logistics. You know, but when I'm seeing... Um, you know, the younger crew members coming on, you know, they have to meet weight restrictions. They have to be a certain fitness level and it's grueling. Like even the fitness test alone, I would never, ever be able to pass it. And I don't think anybody at my level would be able to pass that either. Uh, It's just, but it's just showing this like trend of, you know, really young people coming in, you know, they're going to college and this is, you know, was at one point a summer job. Um, But now we're seeing, obviously, that the seasons are just starting so much earlier and ending way, way later than could accommodate a summer student. There's been a lot of talk about the kind of toll that this is having on people, especially those who've been fighting fires for a long time or have been out there for a while. Uh, What are some of the things that you're seeing or or have seen when it comes to the impacts of this? Because I guess it's not something we know that much about, or at least it hasn't been looked at generally very much. Yeah, I know in the past that there's been several universities that have been starting to do studies, you know, on occupational health and in obviously safety. Um, there's been some look, you know, some stuff being looked at um, in regards to the fitness test to see, like, is it a, a, a real representation of what's what's needed? Because, you know, several people do get injured doing their fitness test because it's pretty grueling. Um, but then there's also, you know, looking looking long term um you know smoke effects i think that was the main one because you know we don't wear any apparatus like we're not like structural firefighters we don't wear you know breathing apparatus when we're out on the fire line so there's been you know um studies being started on cumulative effects of of smoke inhalation but i i really feel like where there's a lack in studies and uh, supports is the mental health aspects not just while you're in the system, as I've called it in, in several interviews, but also after, like myself, I'm now you know, technically retired, but I've seen more and more people that have you know, worked several years and seen like, some pretty intense stuff um, or bear witness to their friends experiencing this stuff you know, through that you know, transfer of that. Um, mm. And I, it just has not been studied nearly enough to know the full effects. Yeah, it is the physical and the mental strain of doing this. I think for people who've never done the work, it's hard to picture what that could be. What does that look like? I mean, it can really vary depending on the type of job that you're doing, the type of um, crew that you might be working on. You know, initial attack crews are typically like a three-person crew. You know, like I was saying, they have to meet a special requirement on weight. It's, you know, 200 pounds with their boots on kind of thing. 
uh, to be able to fit for helicopter weight requirements. You know, and then we have unit crews, which are, you know, about a 20-person crew of people, and they can be uh, a pretty diverse mix of different weights because typically they're either flown in the big jets or they drive out to incidents. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and then we're seeing a lot more um, contract crews, like, I mean, we wouldn't be anywhere without contract crews, whether they're, you know, the boots on the ground, you know, or, or doing like, you know, danger tree assessing, which is, you know, they're all also there doing very dangerous work. Um, it, it, it varies um, quite heavily depending on what you're doing for your role. You know, in someone like in my position would have been, you know, a lot of tactical um, requirements, you know, a lot of um, logistical, you know, possibly going out to an incident to assess the situation as like a first response and then, you know, developing a tactical plan, you know, with our zone officer to to figure out what we need to do. Right. I, I guess what I'm struggling, just trying to understand it is what would be the the mental health strain of that? Because it sounds quite technical the way you describe it, but, you, but you're saying too that the after effects and what's the impact it's having on people can be pretty significant. Yeah, it is. Like it can be very significant, not only the physical toll of, you know, having to pack such, you know, extreme amounts of weight on your back, you know, you're running in a hose line um, or even just the mental strain of like being that person that is supposed to basically sit behind a desk and figure out looking at a map and you know getting phone calls and radio calls what exactly I'm doing while well, you know those little dots like those are people those are you know pieces of equipment those are you know um, those are aircraft like this is like, there's so much that's involved not only physically but mentally to be able to try to make the best decision um, that's right for every individual situation and the toll of that and also the toll of being, you know, on standby and things like that where any call that you're going to get could be a potential, like, you know, very, very dangerous fire that's going to put people and homes at risk. Tiffany, what do we need to do to make sure then, uh, because it doesn't feel like these wildfire seasons, perhaps they'll come and go, but the bad ones won't be any less intense. What do we need to do to make sure that those on the front lines are getting the kind of supports they need and that we're sort of protecting them? Because you've talked a lot about how it's just sort of that suck it up attitude. And I think that's something we figured out doesn't work well in the long term. No, it doesn't. Um, And I think it really comes down to, you know, There has to be better, like I talked about it in the Narwhal article as well, you know, there has to be better ways to um, talk to the crews and and figure out what they might need at appropriate times. You know, there's what's called a West survey um, that goes out for the BC Public Service. It's like a workplace environment survey. Um, And you can look online and it shows the, the times that they're all sent out. And it's usually during the off season that those are sent out to people. And, you know, a lot of times people are, they're going off to school, like we're not catching, you know, people's needs and and wants at the right time um, and offering support when it's needed. You know, there's different programs in place. Um, I I believe there's a now if people actually qualify for benefits, because you have to work a certain amount of hours for that. um, There's a a workplace um, line that people can call. Uh, But I think, I just think there needs to be more and there needs to be people that actually have been through these situations to like be able to talk to people and, and talk about this. And I think that's what was really important about, you know, having this article come out and, and tell our stories because it's not just isolated incidents after something very catastrophic happens. It's long-term um, and we need to address that right away. 
Yeah, because one gets the sense that that oftentimes these, this work is done in the summer, and then people just kind of go their own way, right? They kind of scatter, and then it's it's insecure. It's it's not that well paid, and it's dangerous work. And we should be and and it's you know very necessary work, and we should be paying more attention to it. Maybe even professionalizing it to some extent, because it feels like we've kind of reached that period now. Yo, definitely. I mean, we're well past that period. And now we're well past the period when the fire season could accommodate students, you know, like, this is something that we have to look at on a on a systems wide basis and not just look at response, 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 and like Mm -hmm. acting when things happen, we really need to put our effort and money and time and, 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 you know, people power behind mitigation and prevention and recovery. Those are the two main pillars that just really are getting missed in our work. I mean, this has been such a tough year and it's been a tragic year. We were talking about it uh, right off the top, you know, that accident yesterday. Maybe, do you think maybe this is this year is the wake up call? Maybe, maybe, perhaps? You know, um, I hate to say it, but, you know, when I when I did that first interview and I was talking about saying, like, you know, what's it going to take, you know, people killing themselves, you know, people committing suicide or getting burnt over. Like, I I said those words before there were deaths here in Canada. And I, I absolutely hate that I was right. I hate it. And there just there needs to be more done now. There needed to be more done you know, 20, 50 years ago, um, there's, it's such a systemic change that needs to happen in our forests and, and across the board. Yeah, I mean, it often feels like in some senses, uh, so much of this work is done somewhat out of sight, right, out of mind to some extent, um, that we kind of, I think, and a lot, a lot of the population lives in big cities, don't see enough of it, just kind of, you know, it just happens kind of magically and those people disappear and we forget about them and you just can't, can't let that happen. No, it's important that we don't, you know, and that's why it's really important to bring this like into the light now that the smoke is starting to settle and places are experiencing frost and fire behavior is going down a bit, not as much as it probably should. Um, and of course, that's due to climate chaos. Mm-hmm. But now is the time to be talking about this. You know, these are the people that, especially in this year, have witnessed and, you know, you know, been friends of or partners of you know, people that have seen some really, really intense fire behavior on the landscape that has um, caused, is, is going to cause long-term effects. It will. Well, Tiffany, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Kukshan. Well, let's talk about food this half hour. Never a bad time to talk about food, is it, on this Thursday night? Uh, We've had some great texts. Good evening, Ben. Strange food. I was at one of my Vietnamese employees' wedding reception in 1992, and the feast included several tasty fish dishes. One was a raw catfish that I endeavored and devoured, I gather, and devoured and barely survived. (laughs) Well, raw catfish. Yeah, raw. Yeah, I don't know what that might be like. Sounds interesting. I, I don't mind trying just about anything. I'll eat just about anything just to see what it tastes like. Um, and then you just don't eat it again if you didn't like it. But yeah, raw catfish, that would be an interesting one. Of uh, past foods, uh, occasionally my ma used to dip crusty, freshly baked, thickly sliced bread in dark molasses as a treat. That sounds awesome. She preferred light molasses as table syrup instead of maple syrup for pancakes and waffles. Yeah, molasses is tasty. We don't, I haven't had molasses in ages. We used to get it in that, in that white um, sort of milk carton almost. Grandma's it was, right? I think we all, ate that at one point in our lives. That sounds really good. Uh, fresh break better than just about anything. So, sounds pretty good. So walk into any grocery store these days and you'll probably be faced with what appears to be a huge variety of food from near and even very far. But it is, according to my next guest, something of an illusion. The truth is that 51% of the calories consumed these days come from just three grasses, rice, 
corn, and wheat, usually all of them heavily modified. By the time they get to us, it's estimated three quarters of the genetic diversity once stored in farmers' fields has been lost since 1900. 10% of the 6,000 or so breeds of domesticated animals used in agriculture are already extinct. These are all issues that were front of mind for author Taras Gesco. And there's subjects he's tackled in the past in a series of books, including a great one called Bottom Feeder, How to Eat Ethically in a World of Vanishing Seafood. His latest project, though, uh, saw him set out more than three years ago now on a global quest for nine lost, in, endangered, and ancient foods. So lost, endangered, and ancient. Not all of them lost, not all of them endangered, not all of them ancient, but one of the three for all of them. It takes him from the mists of Vancouver Island to the heights of Mexico City to the bottom of Italy's boot and many places in between. It's about food and lost flavors, but it's also about what might come before, some of what might came before, what we used to eat might help with the future of food, both as a planet and for us individually. This book is called The Lost Supper, Searching for the Future of Food and the Flavors of the Past, out this week. And Taras Gresco joins me now from Montreal. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Hey, a real pleasure to be with you. This one is, is fascinating because it not only makes you crave adventure and sort of being out there in the world, it also makes you hungry, which is a great, a great, uh, I'm sure that's kind of what you set out to do in the first place. What was your inspiration? I mean, you've written about a lot of different th aspects of food and, and how we treated its histories and so on. What were you setting out to find on this quest? Oh, so many things. I mean, the inspiration kind of came from my own career as a traveling writer uh, who's always called upon to eat and sometimes exotic foods uh, around the world. Uh, it specific, the inspiration for this specifically came from, I think it was back in 2015, I was in a vineyard in Greece, um, and, uh, the uh, vintner there gave me this, uh, wine made with an ancient grape, and he figured it went back to the time of Homer, and it made an, it was a very strange looking grape, it looked more like an olive, wow. and, uh, it made this fantastic, beautiful sort of cranberry-hued wine, and he was like, you know, this is the wine that Homer might have been drinking. And this kind of got me thinking. Uh, and then I was in in Italy doing a story for Sever magazine. And this guy was making olive oil from olives that he'd found growing on the ruins of an ancient Roman villa. And the uh, DNA analysis of it showed that it was, you know, a variety unknown to science and it made this really strange but beautiful tasting olive oil and i started getting interested in the fact that there are all these analytical techniques now that allow us to go back into the past and taste what things uh tasted like back then you know from sort of scrapings from the amphorae they found in pompeii um, they could recreate this ancient fish sauce called garum. Yes. And I'm really interested in the environment and ecology and biodiversity. And these things, I kind of all clicked together. And I started thinking that we are living in a time when we seem to have a great abundance of foods. But actually, if you sort of drill down to what's in the supermarket and what's on the packages of our food, there's fewer and fewer species and varieties and cultivars of food actually being consumed. Um, so I said, there's a book in this. And it turned out uh, to be a really interesting voyage. Um, you know, I mean, there, there are all these great mysteries in food history uh, about foods that have disappeared. But uh, scientists and archaeologists and uh and anthropologists are bringing these things back. Yeah, because so often when we read history, especially ancient history, we don't often 
here, well, you know, they, then they sat in the middle of the Iliad, they sat down for dinner, right? I mean, you don't often see a lot about it. So it's a really interesting way of digging back into the past. You mentioned something interesting, though, because I feel like, you know, I grew up in the 70s, uh, obviously had grandparents who seemed to me have quite a limited diet, right? Uh, basically, based on what they had grown up with, it was quite uniform and what we what they used to eat. And then that kind of expanded. So now we feel like we have food from all over the world, uh, and much more variety than ever before. Even if I, I was looking in my fridge before talking to you and thinking, you know, my wife's from, from near Hong Kong. We have all this different stuff in the fridge. And yet you point out that it's a bit of an illusion. We have a lot more of other countries' foods, but a lot of that food is kind of based or the calories we take are kind of based on the same stuff. Yeah. If you drill down into what we're actually eating, it's, you know, I think it's four species. Well, three species of grasses, wheat, rice, and corn make up 60% of the calories that we consume. And a lot of them are now uh, subject to like scientific hybridization or genetic modification. Um, you know, you can go into a Whole Foods or whatever, or a Safeway, and, you know, it seems like there's a lot of stuff. As for your grandparents, you know, I remember talking to them, and what has vanished actually is the intensity of flavor. Right. Um, you know, I mean, they were getting a lot more sort of Whole Foods their, their vegetables and fruits probably had a lot more flavor than they do now because everything has been so heavily industrialized. And this book kind of makes the case that deliciousness, you know, the, the quest for deliciousness was actually a driving force in human evolution and even in hominem evolution. Uh, I think that we were always like curious about how things tasted and that would take us to the other side of the river or over the hill. So I set out to identify like nine different foods around the world. Um, one of the most interesting ones for me was sylphion, which is a sort yes. of grail of food history. Yes, it's you this... went to Turkey for that, right? Yeah, yeah. Unexpectedly, I was reading some scientific papers and I recognized the name Silphium or Silphian, which is um, this food that was like worth its weight in silver and gold back in the times of ancient Rome. It was sort of a fennel like plant that had this amazing odor and flavor. And the Emperor Nero was said to have eaten the last stock. They kept it, it was so valuable, they kept it in the treasuries in uh, in Rome. And uh, this Turkish scientist, a guy called Mamet Miski, uh, claimed in this paper to have discovered it growing in what used to be a Greek part of Turkey in the center of the country. So long story short, uh, eventually I was on a high-speed train with uh, Professor Miski, and we went to the place where he discovered it 30 years ago. It turned out to be very much like the Silphion that's depicted on ancient coins from uh, North Africa. And we decided to do some cooking experiments with a woman named Sally Granger from England. We all met up in Istanbul in a botanical garden and cooked the stuff. And what do you know? It brought amazing flavor to the foods we were eating. We, we created these recipes from Apicius, which is an ancient uh, uh, Roman uh, cookbook. And it, it really worked. So that was one of the mysteries that I was trying to resolve. There was another one about this fish sauce called garum, which I was actually to able to recreate in my own kitchen. Which I heard, cool. I heard, I heard it's quite odiferous. I mean, I've had fish sauce in other yeah. parts of the world. It's super popular, but I didn't know about Roman fish sauce. And there's been articles about it now. It's sort of, yeah, it's, it's, it's gaining some, uh, some respect. Yeah. Uh, it, 
for example, you probably are familiar with Nam Pla and Nuak mm-hmm. Mam, which are fish sauces from Southeast Asia. Uh, there's a Chinese version. There's even a Japanese version made with uh, the blood of squids, which is really intense. Very kind of. That sounds it. Yes. Yeah. That, that's a little too much even for me. Um, but uh, I was able to make garum using a Coleman camping cooler, <laughs> uh, a, a seedling mat propagator. Uh, keeping the temperature at 30 degrees during a Montreal winter. And after three months, it produces beautiful sauce, which actually adds very, very intense, uh, but beautiful flavor to, you know, spaghetti sauces, French onion soup. Uh, my kids actually appreciate the flavor, which is really, kind of it, was the catch, the it's sort of antiquities ketchup. I mean, maybe not antiquity, but the ketchup of the ancient times, that's kind of the word being thrown around. Uh, yeah, not exactly because no, it's not, so. it's not thick like ketchup. It's no. more like a, a clear sauce. And I also, for that chapter, I actually traveled to uh, the South of Spain where this team from the university of uh, Cadiz, mm-hmm. um, we're using amphorae from Pompeii, which were preserved in the volcanic eruption. Uh, they took the organic remains from the amphorae and discovered what herbs were being used in the sauce. So it's a little different from the Asian fish sauces. Actually, it's quite different. It was really popular in the Roman Empire. There were like garum factories from made of sort of concrete on the sh- on the shores going from Brittany and France all the way to Turkey. They were obsessed with it. And I understand why. And that's the whole sort of great discovery in this book, that the past in terms of gastronomy was really diverse. People ate a lot more kinds of foods, especially hunter-gatherers. Agriculture kind of limited the amount of foods uh, we ate, that's for sure. But it was also more intense Um, I think that one of the things that's been robbed out of our daily life is just how beautiful and intense vegetables and fruits and uh, prepared things like garum can actually taste. And if you talk to your grandparents or your great, or if you knew your great great grandparents, they'll recall these intense flavors from their youth. We don't have that so much today because our food has been industrialized, because the soil itself has been changed. Um, So this was sort of uh, this this worldwide quest for the deliciousness that uh, drove our development as a species. Exactly. People think of all these exotic places you went, you know, the uh, central Turkey or whether it be southern Spain. But you also found some of this right here at home on Vancouver Island, which, of course, has a long history of food as well. And uh, it's sort of an it's a camas, it's sort of an asparagus like thing. I wouldn't call it. Yeah, it, maybe it, it is a vegetal. Yeah. <laughs> um, I grew up in. Close I grew up in. Uh, I grew up on the west coast, and uh, you know, I, I was familiar with things like smoked salmon, and I'd had more exotic things like uh, ulek in Greece and gao, which is herring roe on kelp, in, the, mm-hmm. in some of the languages. But I wasn't familiar with this Coast Salish food until I read about it in, I think it was a European sort of food history magazine. It's called Camas. And it's uh, after smoked salmon, it was the most traded thing uh, on the West Coast in the 19th century, um, up and down the coast. It was a very important part of the diet. And it's still growing 
all around uh, southern Vancouver Island, uh, grows in Gary Oak landscapes. And it was a challenge to find it, for sure. Um, I spent a lot of time talking to First Nations people, uh, Coast Nations people, trying to find chefs who were working with it. And uh, uh, eventually I succeeded. But the story of its disappear not its disappearance, it's kind of more like sleeping. Yeah, call it a use, right, basically? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I was able to to eat some. It's a beautiful food. It's uh, you you cook it in an earth oven uh, or uh, you know these kind of pit roasts they're called, uh, where you you dig a hole in the ground and you cook it very slowly with a lot of vapor. And after about twenty four hours, this root uh, uh, it's basically a lily bulb caramelizes and turns into a beautiful beautiful food if you get a chance if you're invited to eat it um and that's probably you're not going to find it in restaurants it is a it is a great experience it can be consumed in all kinds of ways you can even apparently uh dry it and make uh into flour and then kind of make a bannock out of it oh wow I mean, I've had lily so, root in in Yunnan. I've had lily root in China a few times. It's 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 that's, that sounds fascinating. When you when you've been on this trip, though, when you wrap this all together, there's there's a message here, right? And it's about you know the, we've seen it happen to certain foods that we eat. I, I often hear about bananas being vulnerable because we only eat one species really these days. And if anything were to go wrong challenge. with that, yeah, if anything were to go wrong with that species, we'd be in in deep trouble. So the lack of diversity is an issue. And and looking to the past may teach us not only a bit about what we used to eat, but also how we can eat going into the future. Yeah, I mean, the chapter that really gets into this is the olive oil chapter. Um, mm-hmm. So I went to Puglia in the south of Italy. They're experiencing uh, a plague. Uh, it's a disease, a bacteria called Cellella fastidiosa. It was brought over on an ornamental coffee plant from Costa Rica. And it's really tragic to see what's happening. Puli is one of the great olive oil producers in the world. Um, and uh, this bacteria is turning these ancient olive trees, some of them are 2,000 years old, even older, um, into these skeletons. Uh, at, at a certain point, when you're going south from the boot of Italy, mm. you're just in these skeleton force. The thing is, Basically, those olive groves are monocultures of one or two varieties of olives. And they're finding that growing in the fields alongside the olive trees are resistant species. Um, So they're finding a way to graft these wild cultivars onto the existing trees and save the trees. And this is the case in so many places where we're finding that the diversity of the past is helping us to preserve uh, plants in the present. Our standard way of doing this is relying on seed or gene banks to sort of back up the biodiversity. But I'm arguing that as a consumer, as someone who eats food, you need to seek out slightly more diverse things. Uh, We all do. Uh, There's a lot of joy and pleasure in it, but there's also real value in it because you help preserve these plants by you know creating a market for it by uh, supporting the farmers taris thank you so much for your time tonight what a fascinating adventure you've been on yeah thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me ben it was a real pleasure
Uh, starting a new federal political party seems like a pretty tall order, doesn't it? Uh, getting traction, that's harder. Winning votes and seats, well, that's a real hill to climb. Just ask the Green Party. They've been struggling for ages to try to achieve some kind of breakthrough. It's not impossible. Look back in not so distant uh, in the not-so-distant past in Canada. The Reform Party, of course, was formed in 1987. Only won 2% of the vote in 1988, but appealed enough to disaffected Western voters. The West wants in, you'll remember, um, that they had their first MP in Deborah Gray a year later in 89. And in 1993, they won 52 seats and nearly 19% of the popular vote. The Bloc Québécois, which was really sort of a Lucien Bouchard thing, but you know they were formed in 1991. They had 54 seats. They were the official opposition by 1993. So it's not unheard of, but it needs a big, huge sort of earthquake in politics for it to happen. You remember, of course, in 1993, the Conservatives were absolutely decimated going from a majority government to just two seats in that post-Meach, post-Charlottetown, post-Mulroney era. But what about now? What are the conditions ripe for for a new political party? We've seen the PPC sort of play around on the fringes, not really have any electoral success, kind of based on Maxime Bernier. What would they be without him? Um, you know, not exactly credible. Uh, but are the conditions right perhaps for a new political party to capture a disaffected chunk of the electorate? And what if that chunk were right in the middle? What if the middle were the sweet, the sweet spot now? Not alienation. Uh, from either from geographically, not fringe, but right in the middle, disaffected people right in the middle of the political spectrum. Um, that's what my next guest is betting on. He thinks they've been put off by what he calls rage farming by both the liberal government and their conservative opposition now, this incredible gotcha politics where everything is emotive. You know, you listen to the prime minister, it's always an appeal to emotion. You listen to Pierre Polyev, a little more meat on the bone now, but a lot of it's about what a miserable, awful place Canada is under this government. Whereas, I mean, he was in cabinet more, you know, eight years ago. So nothing changes that much in a decade. Countries chart courses over many years, and no one government is completely to blame for any one thing. I was looking it up the other day. The Conservatives built fewer houses the eight years they were in, in power each year on average than the Liberals have, right? We have a housing crisis. It could have been solved 15 years ago. It wasn't. could have been solved five years ago. It wasn't. Parties play politics with a lot of stuff. And so what he, my next guest thinks is, wait a second, there's room in the middle for some solid policy, for sort of data-led policymaking, for admitting when you're wrong, uh, for changing course, uh, in other words. Now, who knows if this could possibly work? Because it is virtually impossible in our system to set up a successful party. But as I mentioned, it's been done in the past. The group overall has been called Centerized Canadians. And they announced plans on Wednesday to form a new political party called Canadian Future. Dominic Carty is a former progressive conservative provincial cabinet minister in New Brunswick. Um, he is now sitting as an independent. He resigned from uh, Blaine Higgs's government uh, last fall. He will lead the new temporary party temporarily. Um, so he's the party's interim leader for now. And Dominic Carty joins me to explain. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, this is always a brave step to start a new party. I mean, I, I've known about the group for a while, Centerized Canadians. We've talked about it a bit, that especially during the Conservative leadership race, this sort of missing middle. But tell me about the idea to kind of go ahead and launch an actual party. Well, we heard from people who were 
disaffected on both sides of the political aisle, because I, I think really that that aisle is kind of an artificial divide these days. Lots of people who've been active in the Conservative Party, Liberal Party, even some of the smaller parties, just saying that where's the serious plans for these enormous policy challenges that our country is facing? And you say policy, that sounds kind of dry and unexciting, but you know, we're facing crises unlike anything that we've had to run up against since the Second World War, and argue possibly even more dangerous than that time, given how utterly unprepared we are now for the, the, we have a war in Europe that would have seemed unimaginable a couple of years ago. The Chinese are planning to decouple from our economy in the next three years. We are hugely dependent on them for everything from vital components for the stuff we use every day to the cheap stuff that we just take for granted we can buy at Dollarama. And there's been no discussion about how are we going to shift our economy to what's going to have to look a little bit like a war economy? Why are we not talking about building up our defense industries, given that we are far away from the points of potential conflict and would offer a safe place for to be as the U.S. was in the Second World War, the arsenal of democracy? Five years ago, this would have sounded crazy. Right now, this is, I think, if you sort of step back from the the sort of the, the back and forth of the uh, clouds of smoke that the uh, government and opposition like to fling at each other in Ottawa, you step back a bit and look at the world. This is obviously happening. We're having a, you know, we're in a global economic crisis that's uh, looming with you know, huge real estate firms in China on the verge of collapse are actually collapsing their economy and going into a free fall. You know, I was in Taiwan last month on the invitation of the Taiwanese government to just to talk to people there about what it's like having that aggressive country just across the Taiwan Strait. There's a real fear there that the Western world just is not waking up to the fact that Ukraine is the first step in a global conflict that's coming towards us. And we can absolutely protect ourselves and Canada can do well through this you know, probably difficult few years we're about to have. But there's no plans for it right now. And if we don't plan for it, we're going to end up being in a really, really dangerous position, unable to defend our own interests, dependent on the largesse of others. And at a time when international solidarity is not exactly at its strongest, I prefer that Canadians were able to rely on our, each other, ourselves, to know that we had some plans to get through these difficult times to come. Houses to live in, affordable food, that would yeah, those things would all be nice. The, I mean, uh, the, these are all these are all very valid points. I, I think the issue now, we saw it with Brexit, we see it with Donald Trump, we see it, uh, we see it in a lot of places that politics has now become... You know, it's become a war on social media. It's become it's become essentially a gotcha game. And not that it always wasn't to some extent, but right now it feels like it's never been less serious, that, that the solutions to these major problems have never been more sloganed. Uh, how do you convince people to listen to sort of policy arguments? Because clearly they're kind of tuning out and sort of going with this emotive side of things. I mean, again, we saw it in England, in the UK, where a, a country you know well, and we've seen it in the US recently as well. Uh, it, it's a lonely, the middle is a lonely place, Dominic. <laughs> Well, except for I think it actually isn't. It is unoccupied the par by the parties because I think the parties have lost any sort of courage to lead. That we've had parties that for a few decades now, I think, is any sort of sense of a real ideological struggle between left and right has disappeared. You know, we don't see Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Polyev battling about really big questions about the role of government. We see a focus on American-style culture wars, both from the left and the right, by Mr. Trudeau and Polyev, respectively. And the rise of social media, I think, is something that we also need to have a serious national conversation around. You know, 10 years ago, Twitter and Facebook didn't have algorithms. I guess maybe it was about 10 years ago now they put started putting them in. But when they were first opening, it started as platforms. The social media platforms did not have algorithms. You signed up, you looked for things, for people, for sites, whatever, you got them. The algorithms that drive you towards things that you might be interested in, which are usually things that are more extreme, controversial, violent, or uh, anger-causing, those are recent innovations that are weaponizing human nature against ourselves. And I think your, your point about gotcha moments made me think that we've sort of 
crowdsourced gotcha moments now because everyone can hop on Twitter, everyone or X or whatever it is this week or, or on Facebook and onto the different platforms and can chime in. And it also means that parties can have instant access to a network of mainly anonymous voices who can push messaging out that they can then deny that they're even responsible for, or they can take advantage of it, ride that wave of populism to uh, to take advantage of of movements and uh, that uh, are far outside of the mainstream. Mr. Polyarv, to your point earlier, yeah, he I mean he's he won an enormous majority against Mr. Charest last year. Mm-hmm. About eighty percent of the members of the Conservative Party who voted for him had never been members of the Conservative Party before. That you know, Mr. Polyarv's absolutely brilliant in using social media to engage people, and it was the same strategy that the Republicans, well, the Trump people, used to seize control of the Republican Party. You get people who've never participated in politics before; they feel disenfranchised, angry, and alienated. They know that there's something wrong, and that's where the liberals, I think, are a disaster because they refuse to admit there's anything wrong. The populists have got some of the questions absolutely right. It's just the answers that are terrible and dangerous, and in some cases, evil. And that's what really scares me about uh, the Polyev team is whether they know it or not, they are playing with some very dangerous people and walking down some very dangerous paths. You know, you have the opposition party campaigning that the WEF is the agency of some sort of globalist yeah, sort of secret society that's trying to control Canadians, that Canada is broken. This is neither normal or true. But sadly, you know, it's the folks on the other side and the left by opening up ideas of postmodernism and saying the truth is relative, that everyone has their own perspective, their own reality. It's hard for anyone on that side to really fight back. So one of the things we'd like to do in the center is not be a mushy middle, but be to the, be the very sharp pointy end of the of the arrow. Dominic, how does one then get this off the ground? Because we've seen it. If you look at Maxime Bernier, I mean, he was a known figure. And of course, it, that the whole PPC was kind of built around him, a sort of a cult of personality. In this case, I mean, getting a sober middle ground party off the ground, it sounds like a challenge. Absolutely. I mean, that's something which, again, sort of in that spirit of trying to be radically truth telling, this is an enormous challenge. The chances of it, of it succeeding are exceedingly small. Uh, the first past the post electoral system, the just bias that uh, all cultures have towards things that exist versus embracing new things, it absolutely means it's going to be hard. But I can tell you, we went live yesterday at lunchtime, and we've already got over five people who've signed up as members, thousands of people who've come and checked out the website and are saying they want to volunteer, dozens of people saying they want to be candidates, and also an enormous amount of media interest that I was expecting that I'd have a handful of chats yesterday, especially because we didn't make a big deal about the initial, yes, we're going to do this announcement, just a press release, that I've been pretty much doing interviews solidly since 6.30 yesterday morning, and they're going to carry on until tomorrow afternoon, that I think there is... A real desire out there, and I'm going to ask you this question, which I've asked a few other folks, uh, lots of friends, and also some journalists I've chatted with, that the reason why I think this project's important, because I am sure that you've had the same conversations with people who aren't particularly political that I have, when they just look at politics and go, there's something seriously wrong, and I can tell that things are getting worse, and no one's really being clear with me exactly how this has happened or what we're going to do to fix it. And so in the face of that, maybe one year I'll go to the liberals, next year the conservatives, but there's no feeling of any sort of real long-term plan for the future of the country. And when you start to talk, chat with folks like that, I find that they just get more and more concerned about it. You know, that people like us who spend our lives embedded in this world, we end up by knowing a lot more details, which can end up by sort of frightening and depressing people. I find that it's there's a, a lot of anxiety out there, and there is a real need for people, I think, to feel that they don't have to be politically helpless, that we can actually build a home for them. 
I think you see it reflected in the polls sometimes, particularly around the popularity of the leaders of the two parties. I mean, the, the popularity of the parties themselves shifts, but the popularity of the leaders of the party seems to be a very much a none of the above right now. And I think that reflects what, what you're talking about. Uh, when will we, how does this gear up? How, how does this work? You're going to obviously have to have some sort of uh, leadership convention and do all the things that political parties do register and so forth. So all the so as it, so yesterday we sort of officially said we're doing this. This is the name of the party. So the next step is now we're building up our national council, which is going to be the it will be an interim national council, one rep from each province and territory, and then a handful of table officers, you know, sort of president and treasurer, and so on. And our job over the next year is to first go go through the fun and exciting process with Elections Canada of getting all of the paperwork filed, which is not uh, complicated but complex, and uh, you just have to make sure that you do things in a certain order and you have to have a certain number of members signed up and go through diff- jump through different hoops before you can raise money and then the sort of the final step is that you have to present at least one candidate in an, in an election or by election and then you get your full party certification from elections canada can issue tax receipts and all that stuff so we're we're hoping to get all of the non-election based paperwork done over the course of the next few weeks and then we'll see what happens with any by-elections that pop up uh so we hope to be ready to go in terms of the the legal and organizational side very quickly, apart from that election. And then we've got to get out and build those constituency associations across the country and gear up for what I hope will be our first convention around this time next year, which if we are advanced enough, will be uh, the election of a new leader. If uh, if not, the it'll be a policy convention. And then we will trigger the leadership election at that point and have that convention at some point shortly afterwards, based on the decision of the people in the room at that time. So my hope is to be able to use my background because I used to work overseas building mm-hmm. political parties in, Demo- in newly democratic countries to hope I can help out with that process over the next year and a bit. Any parties out there that you would model yourselves on? I'm trying to think of examples from either the UK. There's been comings and goings over the years. I mean, Quebec certainly has a very fluid political scene, uh, depending on on what's happening. I mean, we've had different parties rise and fall there over the years. Anything out there that, that you would use as a template? Uh, it's difficult because there's uh canada's political system is even though we're modeled on the westminster model we still have quite a number of differences from the other countries and in the uk there hasn't been anything big in the way of real evidence-based reform movements i think since the blair government who did a lot of really good things domestically in that direction although his reputation was tarnished by iraq Mm -hmm. Uh, macron in france offers an example i think of how if people decide that they're really fed up with extremists screaming at each other that a centrist option is appealing his Amash movement showed that uh, that can take fire in the space of a few months, and uh, that his party went from not existing to holding both the the Elysee and the National Assembly, and I think it was six months. That's a, a sort of an inspiration, I guess. But organizationally, uh, we are very much trying to build this from Canadian examples, and I'm trying to draw on the experience I developed uh, working in this sort of field professionally around the world to see if we can build a party that embraces some of the things that are new in political organizing around the world, because it's an opportunity to do that if you have a new party. And that means you can have, if you're lucky, a little bit of that leapfrog effect that you know, some developing countries have when they didn't bother building terrestrial phone systems and they just went straight to cell phones. They ended up by having better cell phone systems than Canada. Although, to be fair, I think at this point, everyone has better cell phone system than Canada. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, Dominic, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Everybody, Felix here. I just got to Vancouver. I'm happy to take part of the, this year's Labor Cup again for Team World. Let's go back to back. Come on.
Yeah, if you're a tennis fan, I'm a tennis fan. I like watching tennis. I don't watch it as much as I used to. I used to watch it a lot with my grandmother, my mom's mom. We used to. She was a huge tennis fan, um, and she was so obsessive about it that she wouldn't. She often wouldn't watch the final if one of her favorite players was playing because she was afraid they would lose. So she would sit in the kitchen and I would sit in the living room and tell her what was happening. And tell her, and, and eventually I would say, well, you know, uh, Bjorn Borg, who she loved, won. Uh, speaking of Bjorn Borg. He and John McEnroe are actually in Vancouver this weekend. They're the captains of the two teams, the opposing teams, in something called the Labor Cup. It's the Ryder Cup of Tennis. Team World versus Team Europe. It's the first time that they've played in Canada. It's the sixth annual. It's named, of course, in honor of the great Australian tennis player, Rod Laver, uh, who's also in Vancouver, by the way. Felix Auger-Aliassim, who you just heard, has uh, is part of Team World. He's here as well. Milos Raonic is one of the alternates on Team World. So here's how it works. He'll be on the court, by the way, at the Rogers Centre in Vancouver, I think 7 p.m. Friday night is the opening match for him. I think it's the second match that night uh, as the city plays host to that tournament. Uh, again, Team World versus Team Canada, six players on each team and for the three-day event. The captains, as I mentioned, are longtime friends and foes, John McEnroe for Team World and Bjorn Borg for Team Europe. On the court, you'll see the likes of Ben Shelton for Team World, the American who had that great run of the U.S. Open, uh, Francis Tiafo, who had the American as well, and of course, uh, I mentioned Felix Auger-Aliassim and Milos Raonic. On the European side, Kasper Rudd, Andre Rublev, uh, Gail Mofis, and others. And again, it's all a tribute to Rod Laver. And it's the first time it's here, which is kind of cool. The first time it's been in Canada. And of course, you know, the big tennis tournaments of this country happen in Montreal and Vancouver. They alternate the men and women year in, year out. So the West Coast doesn't get to see a lot of tennis stars. So this is a great weekend for that as well. Team World, by the way, when it's first ever, that's what Felix Auger-Aliassime was referring to. Team World won its first ever cup last year in London. So they're trying to defend that title on home turf. Steve Zachs is the CEO of the Labor Cup, and he joins me now with uh, more on it. Thanks so much for your time tonight. It's great to be here, Ben. Yeah, this is an exciting time. I mean, first of all, it's the first time the Labor Cup has been in Canada. And of course, you know, one always associates tennis in Canada with Toronto and Montreal. Every year we have these big tournaments, uh, and rarely does tennis come out west, and here we are. Well, um, you know, we've been looking forward to coming to Canada for some time. There's some great players here. And uh, so we're excited to be in the in the Northwest. Yeah, tell me a bit about about the Labor Cup for for listeners who may not be familiar with it. It's about six years old. It it if you know what the Ryder Cup is in golf, it has a similar feel to it. Although obviously tennis has different rules. Uh, but tell me a bit about the Labor Cup itself. Where did it come from? Yeah, so the Labor Cup uh, really started when Roger Federer wanted to do something to honor Rod Laver for all he had done to help grow the game and uh, make it a wonderful career for all the current players. Um, and we very quickly determined that there was no Ryder Cup-like event in tennis. So just as you said, uh, we went about creating the Ryder Cup of tennis. Our format is that six of the best players from Europe take on six of their counterparts from the rest of the world. It takes place over three days, and uh, they play a combination of singles and doubles. And uh, you'll see 
rivals become teammates, which is one of the great things. There's no other tournament where you'll see so many of these great players who are normally um, not playing together on that same team. And, uh, you know, they're cheering each each other on from the benches, which is something you don't see anywhere else. We have a beautiful black court, uh, incredible sound and light show. And like we said, the the team benches are built right into the courts. So you can see the players uh, as they're supporting each other while they're playing. Yeah, and and I mean, if you think about it, people don't remember who Rob Rod Laver is. I mean, he was. I mean, ten of you speak to tennis players today, even though he played in the '60s. I mean, he was an incredible force in tennis, and uh, and helped really open we would think of jimmy connors and, and bjorn borg and john mackerel we can get to them in a bit but rod labor really kind of blazed the trail for what we now know as modern tennis that's true uh when rod played um you couldn't make a living playing tennis in fact you had to be an amateur to play in the grand slam tournaments and rod won all four grand slam tournaments something that has not been done since and then became a professional. He needed to earn money. And so for a handful of years, he and some other of the best players uh, created their own tour, played for a small amount of money, traveling the world. Um, That created pressure for the Grand Slams to once again admit them um, and make the sport open, meaning allowing amateurs and professionals to both compete. Uh, when right. that happened, Rod won the Grand Slam again, uh, the first complete uh, season he was back. Yeah, those calendar year Grand Slams are rare indeed. Uh, we talk about them even to this day. Speaking of familiar names to tennis fans, and this will always, I mean, they've been here since the get-go, but the idea of having Bjorn Borg and John McEnroe back facing each other, even if they're not playing, is pretty enticing. That is one of the best parts about it. They really embo- embody sort of the spirit of the Labor Cup. These are guys who were uh, fierce rivals, uh, but respect each other and uh, are now good friends. And similarly, that's the way uh, we expect people to perform here, is these rivals come together for three days, they compete together, um, they uh, respect the competition, they fight hard. I didn't mention earlier that one of the unique aspects of the Labor Cup Again, tying back to that Ryder Cup concept is that for us, day one, there's four matches, each worth one point. On day two, four matches worth two points. And day three, the matches are worth three points. So there's lots of strategies for these captains in terms of who they put out in each of these uh, matches. And it's the first team to 13 that wins. It's very exciting. And in four of the first five years, it's gone right down to the end on Sunday. Um, and it's fast. The, each of the matches is um, two sets. And if it's tied after those two sets, then we have a 10-point match tiebreak. Uh, very exciting format. Yeah, absolutely. I gather that in the past, uh, Team Europe, it's Team Europe uh, represented, of course, by Captain Bjorn Borg, Team World, which includes... All, has always included a Canadian contingent in it, or at least a Canadian uh, player, is is John McEnroe's. Uh, Team World is at, at won last year for the first time, so they have a title to defend here on home turf. Yes, so it was incredibly exciting. Every year, 
up until this year, Team World has definitely been the underdog based on player rankings. Uh, last year in London, the big four, Roger, Rafa, Novak, and Andy were all on the team. But it was an incredible event. And Felix uh, Ajay Aliassime could arguably be considered the uh, MVP. He beat Novak Djokovic in singles and also participated in a doubles win. Um, but other members of the team included uh, Francis Tiafo, who's back, mm -hmm. as well as Taylor Fritz. Uh, so they've really got all of the best players just about from that side of the world um, are on this team. You mentioned, uh, you know, Milos will be here this year. Very exciting. I mean, he really started the uh, trend of great players in this era in Canada. And, uh, you know, this year, unfortunately, Denis Shapovalov was injured, but he's played many times and uh, has been a great uh, uh, teammate and competitor in the Labor Cup in the past. Yeah, it'll be great to have Felix Ogialiasim and Milos Raonic playing there because, of course, it, it helps when you have some hometown favorites to cheer for as well, I suspect. And, and of course, uh, Ogialiasim has had a bit of a tough year, but this could be a chance for him to really shine in front of a home crowd in a format that's not quite, you know, the normal that you'd see in Toronto or Montreal. That's true. Uh, last year, after his success at the Labor Cup, he went on a great run uh, for the rest of the year. So it'd be wonderful if this is a launching pad for him. I know that uh, Captain McEnroe is really counting on him and uh, hoping that's the case. Yeah, I wouldn't want to get on John McEnroe's bad side if he were my, <laughs> if he were my coach. Uh, I know there's some big names. People may look down the list this year and think, oh, maybe some of the big names from the past aren't there this year. I know that Kyrgios had to withdraw. Uh, Djokovic is not there. Federer, obviously not. Nadal not. But it's also an opportunity, and it's a bit like the Ryder Cup that way. A lot of it's about the team. And the Ryder Cup, it always strikes me that someone comes out of nowhere and kind of dominates for their side. And that's kind of the fun of it all, too. It's not just about seeing. I mean, there's a lot of big names there. Don't get me wrong. Uh, on Rubelev, Stan Wawrinka, Gail Mofis. Uh, you mentioned Ben Shelton just had a really good run at the U.S. Open. So there's some big stars playing. Uh, and once the team competition gets going, uh, I think it becomes more about the flag than about the player. There's no question that there's some kind of magic that happens when you get uh, six of the best players in the world uh, competing for something against uh, some others. Uh, they... It's different than when they're on the tour, when they're competing by themselves. Uh, in this case, they have to, um, you know, represent not just themselves, but their teammates, their captain, and sort of, let's say, this bigger idea of Europe and the world. Um, you know, they talk about that all, all the time, that it's lonely out there on the tour. And the other thing that's really important is every player on the winning team gets $250,000. So you don't want to let your teammate down when uh, they're uh, hoping to grab that. No kidding. And, and if it is, you know, if, if past his prologue, if you have Borg and McEnroe as your captains, I mean, they may talk about how friendly it all is. And I suppose in many ways that, you know, this is this is in many ways a friendly tournament, but these are not non-competitive people at any at any turn. Oh, there's no question that this is uh real competition. Uh we, you know, we saw that right from the very first uh, Labor Cup. And uh, as you said, uh, you know, you'll see McEnroe out there, uh, you could say, compelling his players to, uh, you know, fight and win. Indeed. Um, you're, I mean, you have, you, you, 
grew up in New York, I know. So you, you have sort of tennis in the blood without having tennis in the blood. But you had a really interesting U.S. Open story uh, about skipping school and going. Now, your tournament, luckily, is Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So you don't have to, I suppose you could skip school on the Friday. But you skipped school on a Monday to see one of the most famous uh, women's and men's finals in, in U.S. Open history. Well, thanks for, uh, you know, checking uh, my uh, you know, my history out. But that is definitely true. When I was growing up, uh, my dad uh, allowed me what they called hook, play hooky at that time and go to lots of different sporting events. And I was very lucky to go to the U.S. Open uh, at Forest Hills and uh, see Jimmy Connors win, uh, you know, Billie Jean King. Uh, the Connors match was the one where he... Uh, I guess you could say destroyed Rosewall. <laughs> Jimmy Connors, a little, just slightly, be- slightly before my memory time, but yeah, he was quite the. So you must enjoy this as a tennis fan as well, because it, that it is a spectacle, a once a year spectacle. That's right. I grew up watching uh, tennis on public television. Uh, even Rod Laver was playing at the time. So for for me to now be doing uh, an event that uh, honors him and to be working with all these great athletes. Uh, you know, a lot of us here are tennis fans and we enjoy watching it and seeing how it's going to turn out as much as putting it on. Yeah. And I guess you, it will be forgiven for cheering for team world. Of course, as Canadians will be forgiven for rallying behind Felix and, and Milos and, and uh, the other team world players. Well, we hope that happens. We really, we didn't mention that the tournament moves, from a Europe to the rest of the world location each year. We were in Prague the first year, then Chicago, Geneva, Boston, uh, London, and now here we are in Vancouver, next year in Berlin. We love it if the home team, uh, you know, gets the support. And so if the Vancouver fans or the Canadian fans are out there rooting not only for uh, Felix and Milos, but the whole team, that's fantastic. Well, Steve, good luck with uh, the Labor Cup Canadian edition, the first time it's been here. Uh, Thanks so much for your time tonight. Thanks, Ben. Enjoyed it.